Amen. Well, we've seen these last two weeks from Psalm 2 that Satan has an end-time agenda. Let's just read Psalm 2, the first three verses again. It says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So the leaders of the earth are challenging God's right to command their obedience, and they resist giving their devotion to Jesus Christ. See, we need to again understand that God intended for our souls to be captured and consumed and enthralled with devotion to Jesus. I mean, our highest development, our greatest fulfillment actually do lie in worshiping him and in serving him with abandonment. So Satan is aware now of God's agenda to make that happen. So Satan has an agenda also in which he wants to raise up a passionate people. God wants to raise up a passionate people for his son. So Satan knows that agenda. So Satan wants to raise up a passionate people also, a people consumed by passion for everything and anything else except the son of God. So how does he do it? Well, we see from Psalm 2 how he does it. First, he deceives the rulers and leaders of every segment of life. Politics, education, you know, entertainment. He deceives those leaders, and then he unites them around his purposes, the devil's diabolical purposes. The devil actually teaches these leaders. The leaders don't consciously know they're being taught by the devil to do this, but he teaches them to devise clever ploys to capture public opinion and to undermine righteousness. And then he provokes them, the devil provokes them to overthrow the edicts of God, overthrow any restraints of God's written word, overthrow all wise boundaries that God has given us, overthrow those, resist God's right to rule in their lives, and ultimately resist his son. That really is the satanic agenda. Now, there is an ancient Ugaritic proverb. Ugaritic was a language unearthed about 80 years ago. It's a cognate language of Hebrew, a sister language of Hebrew. And they found a proverb in Ugaritic that goes like this. First man resists evil. Then man endures evil. Then man accepts evil then man embraces evil. That's what Satan has been trying to do out throughout history, but it's going to be intensified in these last days. Now, one evil that was once upon a time resisted in most cultures and then endured and then finally accepted as just a normal way of life and now is even being pressured to be embraced and even celebrated here in our country is the LGBTQ agenda. And what's interesting is you see these anti-Israel, pro-Hamas protesters and LGBTQ protesters protesting together. 
And you think, what strange bedfellows. But it's really not strange if you think a little bit more about it and you realize that both sides really are what the devil is trying to do in the last days. The devil hates the Jewish people. He hates them. He's hated them from the beginning of God's choosing Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. He hates them. And he hates all of God's designs and God's commandments. So now, the question I think I want us to try to answer today is how has the devil gone about deceiving people in our country from every segment of society now? Deceiving them to actually embrace and even celebrate the LGBTQ agenda. Now, in order for us to really understand this, we need to back up a little bit and really understand the answer to three questions. The first question is, what is, why is there such a debate about the LGBTQ lifestyles? Why does this debate rage on? Question number one. Question number two, what is the truth about LGBTQ lifestyles? What's the truth? And thirdly, how should we respond as a church to this issue? So let's just walk through this. First question we need an answer to is, why is there such a debate? about LGBTQ lifestyles. So if we're gonna understand what's going on here, we need to understand what their position is, why they hold it, and they really, in fairness, need to understand our position and why we hold it. So they need to understand why Bible-believing Christians hold their view and why we need to understand why LGBTQ community holds their view. So let's look at the presuppositions of each side. The LGBTQ community believes that their position is a moral alternative. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just different. The presupposition is that they were born that way. Therefore, that's who they are. It's not simply something that they do. It is their identity. They believe that God made them that way or genetics made them that way or early childhood rendering made them that way. But they believe it is who they are. It is their identity. And therefore, from their perspective, it is normal and natural for them. So if it's normal and natural, and that's just the way that they're made, then when people disagree with that, we really have a civil rights issue on our hands. Because think about it, if African Americans are made different, Hispanics are made different, Asian people are made different, and we have rules and regulations and laws to protect them, civil rights laws. And if I'm made differently, then I should have the same civil rights protection as any other minority group. That's their position. We need to understand that is how they see it. Now, it's equally important that the LGBTQ community understand how we as Bible-believing Christians see it. Because there are stereotypes out there of us that aren't very flattering. The scriptures teach that homosexuality is an immoral, prohibited sexual orientation. Very clearly that it's wrong, that it's sinful and destructive, that it's a violation of what God has ordained in his created order. Therefore, as a Bible-believing Christian, it's, it's not an alternative 
lifestyle, but it's a sinful, destructive lifestyle that brings pain, premature death, and brokenness in relationships. So the issue, you know, the issue is, a, from our perspective, a moral issue. It's not a civil rights issue. Now you can see why there's such passionate debate on this issue. All right, second question we need to consider is what's the truth about LGBTQ lifestyles? Now the Bible teaches that we're all born into a sin-sick world. Not only are we born into a fallen world because of sin, but every human except for Jesus has been, is born with a sin nature. Of course, the Holy Spirit, you know, came over Mary, the Virgin Mary, and that's why Jesus didn't have a sin nature. But every human being, we're all born with sin natures. And really, that, that is not a hard thing to defend, that view. I, I, th I think every parent believes this. I mean, the first two things that children say with passion is no and mine. Yes. Exodus 20, verse 5 says, You shall not worship them or serve them, talking about idols. You should not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now listen to this. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. So the impact of sin is passed through generations. <clears throat> Everyone as born has a sin nature, which includes a propensity to sin, a leaning to sin. Now, not everyone's propensity to sin is the same. Some may have a propensity toward alcoholism. Some may have a propensity toward lying, a leaning toward stealing. Others may have a leaning or propensity towards homosexuality or transgenderism. Now, here's what we need to understand is God didn't make us that way. The entrance of sin into the world and our sin nature is what influences us to have certain sinful leanings. So some may have a leaning toward homosexuality or transgenderism because of the sin nature and its particular leanings that's been passed down to them. Others might have had a traumatic experience like sexual abuse. It also involves a sin against them. Sin's always involved here. And it caused them maybe to lean toward homosexuality. Well, the truth is that Jesus came to break the power of sin, no matter what the sin is. He came to break that power. But this answers an important question. That question is, did God make anyone gay? Now, the answer is no. Homosexuality or transgender leanings or desires are the result of sin in some way, either directly or indirectly, but God did not make anyone gay. God made people free, and in their freedom, they brought sin into the world, and therefore you have the culprit. It's sin, sin nature. But is it possible for someone to have been born with certain sinful leanings that even include homosexuality and transgenderism? And the answer is yes. Does that make it okay? Of course not. Jesus came to reverse the curse. Jesus came to break the power of sin in our lives, whatever the sin may be. Now, what about the question, do people choose to be gay? The answer, for the most part, is no. They do not choose the feelings. 
They do choose, they do not choose the leanings, but they do choose to act on those feelings. See, an alcoholic may have certain leanings, but that does not, they, he does not have to act out those leanings that are in fact destructive for them to do so. With Christ's help, that the alcoholic can overcome the leanings and, and, and just live a life pleasing to God. We all know this. The same is true for the homosexual. Now, at this point, someone might want to interrupt me and say, well, you know what? Living a homosexual lifestyle is not destructive and it is not unhealthy. It is normal. And I would say, okay, let's be honest here and look at some studies and statistics. Dr. J. Satinover documents that homosexuals lose 25 to 30 years of their lifespan. Gonorrhea, syphilis, herpes, HIV, AIDS, other sexually transmitted diseases, enteric infections and disease, cancers, alcoholism, suicide, and numerous others he cites in his study are the reason for their dramatically shortened lifespan. The American Cancer Society, you can go to their webpage, <clears throat> they have something on their webpage that says cancer facts for gay and bisexual men. And it specifies that gay men are have an increased risk for lung, testicular, colon, and anal cancers. Their webpage also includes cancer facts for lesbian and bisexual women. It indicates that this population has an increased risk of breast, lung, colon, ovarian, and endometrial cancers. And you can go to another website. In fairness, I wanted to look at this website as well. <clears throat> it's called the Gay and Lesbian Medical Association the Gay and Lesbian Medical Association, GLMA. Now on this web, the website, it says 10 things lesbians should discuss with their health care provider. And they state this, lesbians have the richest concentration of risk factors for breast cancer than any subset of women in the world. And lesbians are a higher risk for many of the gynecologic, gynecologic cancers. And then on the same webpage, 10 things gay men should discuss with their health care provider. And they say, and I quote, gay men may be at risk for the death of prostate, testicular, or colon cancers, and an increased rate of anal cancers in gay men. And then you can go to websites around the world. You can go to, for example, the Netherlands Mental Health Survey, an incidence study, asserts people with same, sexual, same sex sexual behavior are at greater risk for psychiatric disorders mood disorders, anxiety, having more than one psychiatric diagnosis, and substance use or disorders were specified, many more. Then you can go over to New Zealand. New Zealand study found that gay, lesbian, and bisexual young people were at increased risk for suicidal behavior, ideation, major depression, generalized anxiety disorder, conduct disorder, tobacco dependence, and multiple disorders compared to the heterosexual subsample. So I just ask you the question, does any of this sound normal and healthy? Less than 3% of homosexuals in our country are over the age of 55. Only 1% die of natural causes, old age, 1%. The average death of a male homosexual in this country is 42 years old. Now you might be thinking, why so many diseases? Why so, such young deaths? Well, it has to do with the sexual practices. It goes against how God created our bodies to work. Anytime we violate God's design, there's always consequences. 
So let's transition. We're talking about the truth. Let's talk about what God's Word says about the subject. All I want to do is I want to read some Bible passages. I'm not even going to comment on them. I just want to read them because they're very simple, straightforward. Let's start. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. Verse 22. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Leviticus 18, 22. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20, verse 13. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Romans 1, 26 and 27. For this reason God gave them over to the degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. So here's my question. How can we truly act in love toward homosexual family members or friends? And most of us in this room say we've got one. How can we act in love toward them and not warn them and not want them not want to help them out of that lifestyle. Our second question I think we need to ask and answer, and that is, how should we respond? We should respond, number one, consistently. Consistently. Joe, author Joe Dallas, by the way, if you want to read more on this subject, I think he's the best voice out there, Joe Dallas. Author Joe Dallas rightly points out, if the body of Christ is to effectively address moral issues in the culture, it seems that she must first address whatever moral problems she has within her own ranks. We cannot, he goes on to say, with any integrity, speak to the culture about sexual immorality if we wink at sexual immorality within our own walls. You know, we've all heard the phrase, we have an elephant in the living room. It's when people conspire not to speak about something that's obvious they ought to be talking about. Well, I would suggest <clears throat> there's some very inconvenient statistics floating around on the internet about the church that constitute one heck of an elephant in the middle of the sanctuary. The, Nas the National Coalition for the Protection of Families and Children did a survey of five Christian college campuses a few years back. And they found that these are Christian college campuses. They found 48% of the Christian male students admitted they regularly use internet pornography. Christian Today's Leadership Magazine Christianity Today's Leadership Magazine, did a survey of pastors and found out that 33% of the clergy surveyed admitted they struggled with pornography. 
MarketWire.com did a survey of a Christian population and found 50% of the male and 20% of the female population admitted that they had recently been involved in some form of sexual compromise. Today's Christian Woman magazine did a survey of the Christian female readership and found 34% admitted that they'd been involved in some form of sexual compromise. I mean, you have to say that the problem of moral compromise exists in the body of Christ to a much greater extent than the body of Christ would care to recognize. And by the way, it's not just our impact that's being compromised, it's our credibility as well. I mean, when, we, when the church, you know, when they, when they hear us rail against things like same-sex marriage and sanctity of life and talk about the sanctity of marriage and value monogamy, and then turn around and we look at what so many Christians are doing in private. I mean, could you imagine if there was some guy 300 pounds and he is doing a late-night info commercial about some type of, you know, exercise equipment? And the product might be actually very excellent product, but his own condition is so compromised because he's 300 pounds overweight, who's going to believe him? You and I cannot be part of the solution if, if we're part of the problem. So we've got to start off by saying to whatever extent this problem exists in any of our lives, we must repent and recommit to the biblical standards of, standard of holiness, holiness, all of us. So how do we respond? We've got to respond, first of all, by being consistent. We've got to be consistent. We've got to walk in holiness ourselves. Secondly, first, consistently. Secondly, compassionately. It's important that we repent of our hostility toward homosexual people and recommit to bold love. James chapter 1, 19 and 20 says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, Brothers, let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? For the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. And I'm afraid that too often the message from the church to the homosexual community has been poisoned with elements of wrath and hostility. There was once a very well-known Christian speaker, I won't name him, who was addressing a large group of believers in a conference setting, and he got up, and he said this, he said, the Lord has shown me that he's going to destroy the homosexual population by such and such a date. Now, that date came and went and it didn't happen. But what was so disturbing, really, about this prophecy that turned out to not to be a prophecy was that when he said it, the whole auditorium broke out in applause. I mean, think about this. Can you imagine if you, how you would feel if you were part of some subgroup and there's a religious meeting down the street, and they're talking about you, and in the meeting, the leader predicts your death, and everybody applauds. Now, suppose someone from that same group that comes to your door next Sunday knocks on the door and says, we really love you, and we want you to come visit us. Well, you wouldn't go, and neither will they. So to whatever extent that kind of hostility exists in the church, we must repent and recommit to bold love. Love without compromising truth. This is really important. Bold love without compromising truth. Looking for redemptive ways to express the truth in love. So we need to respond consistently. We need to respond compassionately. But thirdly, we need to respond courageously. It's going to take courage in the days to come to stand on this, this truth in the Bible. It will take great courage. 
Much of the church has been so intimidated by the LGBTQ community, they've already given up on the truth. The truth is that there is within the LGBTQ movement, a, in fact, a militant and influential faction that has, a, a, has an agenda. What is frightening about their agenda is that it is committed not only to the normalization of homosexuality, but to the silencing, silencing of anyone who opposes that normalization. I think the actress Jamie Lee Curtis said yesterday that, that she was defending her, uh, the fact that her daughter was gay, and she was saying that we need to silence the, religious homo the homophobic religious view. So, now the, so they want to normalize it, and then they want to silence anyone who's against that normalization. That's the agenda. Now, as far as the normalization of homosexuality in this country, it's already largely been accomplished. Over the past 50 years, most of the institutions that influence American thinking have all shifted. They've all shifted to pro-gay position. Psychiatric institution, they've shifted. The institution of education, they shifted. The news media, they shifted. The entertainment industry, they shifted. All to a pro-gay position. Now, the primary institution that still opposes the normalization of homosexuality is the church. But much of them have already shifted. As the culture has consistently shifted to this pro-gay position, and then they turn to the church saying, now shift with us. We have had to say over and over, we can't. We can't. Hence, the tension. Now, in all fairness, we didn't ask for this fight. We didn't go out into the culture to instigate a battle. Rather, the culture began saying to us, we've changed, and now we want you to change. And the more and more pressure that they put on us to change, the more and more we have to dig our heels and say, we can't. We can't do it. So enter phase two of the agenda. Silence those who oppose the normalization of homosexuality and transgenderism. And we already see this silencing promoted and enforced in the gay rights movement. In fact, it's interesting, not, not many years ago in Colorado, there was a, a lesbian couple that were married, and, and they had, one of them had a daughter. But then they decided to get divorced. So they went to divorce court. And here's what the court decided in Colorado. They told the mother of the daughter who had become a Christian and didn't want to be in this relationship anymore, they told her that her ex-partner, lesbian partner, has to be able to continue to visit the daughter. And then they said that the Christian mother could not expose her child to Christian material that the court deemed homophobic. because her former partner is still in the daughter's life. Well, think about this. A family court in Colorado told a Christian mother that she could not expose her child to Christian material that the court deemed homophobic. In Canada, where it became illegal to make public statements that might incite hatred or violence toward homosexual people, uh, again, you know, what, what, what you got to figure out what, what's going to constitute 
inciting hatred and violence. Quoting a Bible verse? Well, what they found out. A city council member found out when he publicly said, he just said this publicly, he said, I question as a Catholic whether or not homosexuality is normal. That's all he said. For this offensive statement, he was fined $1,000, and he was forced to make an apology. By the way, he got off light. In Sweden, a pastor, Pastor Green, who in violation of Swedish law actually spoke against homosexuality from the pulpit, he was actually arrested and jailed. What was particularly chilling was the statement of the public prosecutor who tried the case. Here's what he said during the case. He said, collecting Bible verses on this topic makes it hate speech. By the way, keep that in mind when you hear the virtues of hate crime legislation, where that could go. It's already going. So how do we respond? We've got to respond consistently. We've got to walk in holiness ourselves. We've got to be compassionate. We've got to walk in love without compromising truth. We've got to be courageous. There's going to be more and more pressure on us to give in. And by the way, the, the millennial, those who call themselves millennial, I mean, millennials who call themselves Christians, over half of them in this country believe homosexuality is okay. So you see what's already happening. You see the pressure to start to compromise on the word of God on truth. In 1938, Winston Churchill was beyond, beyond exasperation with the British Parliament when they voted to appease Hitler in Czechoslovakia in hopes that if they appeased him and didn't oppose him, that he would leave them alone. Well, Churchill got up and spoke and said this, you have been given a choice, he said this to the parliament, you've been given a choice between war and dishonor, and you have chosen dishonor, and now you will have both. And so will we. And we can't kid ourselves at this point. If the church begins to say to the culture, we're not going to take a clear position on this. And by the way, I, I have friends of big churches in this city, guys I love that will not speak on this subject because they're afraid of the pushback. So I just want to say, if, if we begin to think, okay, we're, we're not going to take a clear position on homosexuality because it might offend someone, we're going to set a precedent. Do you think they're going to stop on this issue? I mean, the heart of the gospel is not a compliment. Think about this. To tell people you're lost in your sin, you are hopeless without Jesus. If we allow ourselves to be intimidated and not speak the truth on this subject, then I think eventually churches that do that will betray the gospel. Because ultimately that's what Satan wants to take this. He wants to rail against God's commandments, God's design, but ultimately, he wants to rail against God's Son. So, Grace Community Church, what are we going to do? Our goal, by God's grace, is to be consistent and to be compassionate, walk in love without sacrificing the truth, and to be courageous. We're not going to be intimidated. We're going to, the church has to have a prophetic, prophetic voice in these days and speak the truth, and we'll do that here, and will the chips, chips can fall where they may. Let's stand for prayer. <laughs> Father, first of all, we, we start by praying, Lord, for all the ones that we know in this room. We know lots of them and families 
extended families, friends, co-workers. <clears throat> we pray, Lord, for a revelation of Jesus. Jesus, you said no one can come to you unless the Father draws them. So, Father, we're asking you to draw them to Jesus. We're asking you to set them free. We sang about that, Lord, and, and even Elijah reminded us about that during communi communion, that you break this power. You, you have the power to break this bondage. We ask you to do it. We ask you to do it, Lord, in powerful ways throughout our countries. And, Lord, we also pray, Lord, that we would continue to walk in love and the truth. Lord, in the days to come, we'd see a great move of your spirit, Lord, across this country, across this world, of just people coming to the truth of Jesus and being saved and set free. Lord, we pray you use us this week as salt of the earth and light of the world, and that Jesus will be magnified, Lord, in every place we go. In his name we pray. Amen.